Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Michael Greger. Michael is a physician, New York Times bestselling author, and internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. A founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Michael is licensed as a general practitioner specializing in clinical nutrition. We are talking about his book, How Not to Age. This is part two of our conversation. We will discuss how you preserve two of the top functions for most of us, sex life and skin. In addition, we will learn about the anti-aging act. These contain foods, supplements, and behaviors with some of the best opportunities to slow aging and improve longevity, and will put an extra focus on caloric and protein restriction. Enjoy. Another area in your book, which I found really uh, helpful, was when you talked about preserving functions. And I, I think you talked about the 15 different functions. Coming back to what I said very early on in, the, in this episode, people are superficial, are vain. I am superficial, I'm vain. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on how to preserve these three functions, sex life, skin, and hair. Those are some good ones. So in terms of takeaways in the sex chapter, there's actually, this is something I had never heard of before. There's a distinctive odor, body odor of the elderly due to a chemical that we start producing as early as our 40s called 2-nonanol, which is, has this unpleasant kind of grassy, greasy odor. It's caused by the oxidation of omega-7 fats that are increasingly extruded from our skin as we age. But the good news is we can cut that odor by eating two things. One, plain white button mushrooms, significantly cuts down on that odor, and chlorophyll-rich dark green leafy vegetables. Yet another reason to eat your greens. In terms of function, uh, sexual responses for both men and women are related to blood flow. Diet and lifestyle changes that are good for the heart are also good for the genitals. And indeed, men and women randomized to healthier diets can experience significant improvements in sexual function that may be due to the anti-inflammatory effects of healthier diets, the blood vessel dilating effects of certain fruits and vegetables like watermelon and beets, and then the lower phthalate and BPA exposure, those plastics chemicals by cutting down on processed foods. In terms of sexual desire, there's a dangerous and ineffective drug prescribed for women called fibocerin, I believe, that should be avoided. Similarly, there's not enough safety data on prescribing testosterone for women to warrant FDA approval. However, for women, lavender and bitter orange aromatherapy may help, though it's difficult to do placebo-controlled trials for aromatherapy. Supplemental testosterone can help with low libido in men, though the risks likely outweigh the benefits. Thankfully, there are safe natural ways to boost testosterone with diet and lifestyle uh, approaches, such as eating less than a teaspoon a day of fenugreek seeds, boost testosterone, as well as avo avoiding obesity, um, sleep deprivation and beer. That's another reason to get enough sleep is it maintains your testosterone levels. The spice saffron can improve the sexual impairment caused by the Prozac type drugs, the SSRI antidepressants. Maca root has been shown to increase sexual desire in men and sexual function in women. There's another root called ashwagandha, which can improve some aspects of sexual female function, but there's a risk of liver toxicity, so I actually recommend against it. 
About half of postmenopausal women experience genitourinary symptoms of menopause. It used to be called vulvovaginal atrophy. First-line treatment is the low osmolarity lubricants, uh, vaginal lubricants and moisturizers. There's only a few brands I could find that really fit that bill, which I talk about. Second-line treatment are topical hormones, intervaginal estrogens or DHEA. Vaginal estrogen is both safer and more effective than systemic estrogens in terms of vaginal symptoms, and oral DHA doesn't work at all. However, oral fenugreek seeds and topical Fennel creams can increase, improve sexual symptoms in postmenopausal women. And in terms of erectile function, smoking cessation, weight loss, probably through testosterone, physical activity can all help with ED. The one type of exercise can actually make it worse, prolonged cycling because of the pressure on the pudendal nerve. Men should know that drugs like Viagra can have both short and long-term adverse effects. I talk about the pros and cons. And though ginseng appears to have no effect on female sexual function, Korean red ginseng can significantly improve erectile function in men. I think those are the main takeaways for sex. There's so much, and I could <laughs> fill the whole episode around this. I'm only going to say two things. One is, with your comment around beer, you will have made our listeners in Germany not very happy. Oh, sorry. We love yeah. to drink beer. So let's keep that in mind. Beer reduces testosterone um, and it gives you belly. There's a very powerful phytoestrogen in beer called hopian from the hope, from the hops. In fact, hop pickers, female hop pickers start menstruating in the fields because it's such a powerful estrogenic effect. So we think it's actually the, the, that, that phytoestrogen in beer that's causing the drop. Uh, I'm happy that I only drink beer once a year on the Oktoberfest. I, I should be mostly fine with that. And the other thing that I found really interesting, your very first thing about odor, is oh. that this typical, how do I say this yeah. in a political correct way, this old people smell? Yeah, that's the old people smell. In fact, in Japan, there's actually a name for it, kiriyashu. It's just, and we actually, and I, what was fascinating to me, I thought maybe it's just that's the smell of nursing homes or that's the smell of different kind of bathing or whatever. But no, they actually found out exactly what the compound is. And yes, it smells exactly like that. And why the compound gets increasingly made. And what's even better, these interventional trials to see if we can do anything about it. What's the point of knowing about it if we can't do something? And so they found these two foods. So I was really psyched about that. That one is a really big one. <laughs> Skin, let's move on to skin. It, so how can I help my skin? Okay, the single most effective way to slow the signs of aging is protect your skin from the sun. Though ambient air pollution can also contribute due to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are these combustion byproducts that kind of coat diesel exhaust particles, and also formed when coal is burned, tobacco is smoked, and uh, meat is grilled or barbecued. In terms of diet... The carotenoid nutrients in certain colorful fruits and vegetables like beta-carotene are deposited in the skin and offer this kind of healthy glow in both light and dark skin tones. Nutrients in greens can help improve skin elasticity, collagen status, facial wrinkles, perhaps due to this kind of inside-out sunscreen effect. Drinking extra water can decrease signs of uh, skin dryness, not surprisingly, and roughness. Honeybush tea can reduce eye wrinkles, and cocoa powder 
can increase skin thickness, elasticity, and decrease wrinkle severity as well. That's a tablespoon a day of natural, not alkalized cocoa. Almonds can decrease wrinkle severity, perhaps again by increasing skin UV resistance. You can actually, you know, burn people with UV lamps before and after almond consumption and see significant reduction in, in redness. Ground flax seeds can improve skin smoothness. And soy foods can improve facial skin elasticity and fine wrinkles. But if one is eating strictly plant-based, a regular reliable source of vitamin B12 is critical to ensure proper collagen cross-linking, though the evidence to, to recommend collagen supplements uh, for anyone is insufficient. In terms of topical treatments, Many so-called anti-aging skin creams really work no better than just simple moisturizers when actually put to the test. The gold standard for anti-aging skincare is daily facial moisturizer with SPF of at least 15. It's all about protecting your skin from the sun. Sunscreen has been proven to prevent visible skin aging in randomized controlled trials. There are There is a prescription-only compound called Retin-A, retinoids like tretinoin, that can actually reverse existing sun damage, but it may kill you. A small fraction is absorbed in the bloodstream and may increase the risk of premature death, so I recommend against it. Low-concentration alpha-hydroxyl acids, there's often lotions that can improve facial photo damage, but unfortunately makes your skin actually more photosensitive. So as long as you completely avoid the sun, you could use those, but otherwise it may make things worse in the long run. So what can we use topically? Topical vitamin C and topical niacinamide, also known as nicotinamide, can reduce wrinkles and sallowness, improve skin tone. Uh, a, topo, a, a topical vitamin C uh, serum can be made DIY 2,000 times cheaper than you can get at retail. All you have to do is get some bulk um, ascorbic acid, which is dirt cheap, put three grams in an ounce of water, and that'll cost you about a nickel per ounce versus buying it at the store at over $120 an ounce. And topical niacinamide, you can do the same thing. It's even more expensive, like over $200 an ounce, but you just mix 1.4 grams of a bulk nicotinamide into your favorite skin cream and apply like a pea-sized amount to each side of your face once a day. And again, that's like at a like 5,000% discount. In terms of preventing skin cancer, medical skin checks have not been shown to, to save lives. That was actually, those were studies done in Germany, but uh, sunscreen has been proven to prevent skin cancer. But what are the safest sunscreens? There's only two considered safe. And that's the mineral sunscreens, titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. And then there's like the teaspoon rule, which is like a teaspoon of sunscreen on your face, head and neck, teaspoon for the front of your uh, torso, back of your torso, one for each arm, two teaspoons for each leg. So a total of a shot glass or a golf ball full. And that's really the best. That's how much sunscreen you actually have to use to, to properly protect yourself from the sun uh, in terms of sun, uh, skin cancer. And there's something called black salve on the internet for skin cancer it turns out to be a dangerous scam i talk about there are randomized control trials showing that oral nicotinamide and low-fat diets can significantly decrease the risk of skin cancer some of the risk factors uh, i talk about varicose veins with skin uh, basically is all about reducing obesity and chronic constipation and then i also include nail health in the skin chapter where i talk about the risk of using acrylic nails in terms of uh, fungal nail infections and separating nail from the nail bed. In terms of what you can do for fungal, um, predominantly toenail infections, 
Uh, tea tree oil may be just as effective as the antifungal drugs, although that's not really saying much. And the most important thing to prevent brittle nails is avoiding manicures and uh, nail polish removers, particularly acetone containing nail polish uh, removers. I think it's all my takeaways for skin. Those were quite a lot. Also here, just one follow-up question. When you mentioned skin protection and it makes a lot of sense when it comes to skin aging and cancer. What about vitamin D? Yeah. Yeah. So wait a second. If you're avoiding one of the somewhere you're going to get your vitamin D. So there's a, and I was surprised. I probably carried this misconception myself. The misconception that people who apply sunscreen properly actually have lower vitamin D levels or impairs their vitamin D. We actually need very little sun exposure for adequate vitamin D. So if you're light enough, skinny enough, then just forearms and face for 10, 15 minutes, midday sun is all you need for vitamin D production. And so it actually, so even with protective layers of sunscreen, you get enough vitamin D. However, look, if you are not getting enough sun, period, either you live at a latitude such that during the winter months, the sun's rays are at such an angle, you're not going to get sufficient amounts, or you just don't go outside, period, regardless of where you live, then I would encourage people to take supplemental vitamin D at a dose of about 2,000 international units a day. And that may actually uh, decrease cancer rates, but appears to have no effect on overall mortality just because it has no effect on cardiovascular disease, which is by far the number one killer of men and women. Got it. I would skip over hair because okay. I think, so one, I'm selfish. I, I feel I have enough hair on my head so far, so it should be fine for some time. Um, but I think the real treasure also as a summary for the listener still now up to come, which is what you call the anti-aging aid, because there's also when you look through the book an almost overwhelming amount yeah. of... Yeah knowledge and details and nuances and this affects the other thing and so it, i think that's how i read this in order to make this digestible for people and come up with a concrete conclusion in the end like in hey on population level for most of the people right. these are the most important things to do obviously it can be different for you very specifically but on population level there are these eight right. things and that should be very helpful also for our Listeners, a couple of them, of course, we will already have heard, but let's jump into this. I think number one that you mentioned is nuts. Yeah, the anti-aging aid is really meant to highlight specific foods and behaviors that have the potential really for some of the best opportunities to slow aging and improve longevity. As a complement to my daily dozen checklist of all the healthiest of healthy foods, I encourage people to fit into their um, daily routines, which I came up with in How Not to Die. And there's an app for that, free app, Dr. Gregory's Daily Dozen for those interested. So in terms of, yeah, anti-aging foods, According to data from the Global Burden of Disease Study, again, which is the biggest, best study we have, the largest life expectancy gains would actually be expected from eating more legumes, right? The beans, split peas, chickpeas, lentils. So if there's one thing we could boost in our diet, it's bean, like bean chili, lentil soup, hummus, something like that. And now this is presumed to be because they're the most concentrated source of prebiotics, like fiber-resistant starch which feed the probiotic bacteria in our gut, like lactobacillus and, and bifidobacteria, that produce the 
postbiotics, the butyrate, the acetate, that actually does all the work, which is decreasing inflammation, improving immunity, improving muscle strength in frail individuals. So yeah, legumes rule the roost on a per serving basis, but on an ounce per ounce basis, nuts are indeed associated with the lowest risk of premature death compared to any other food group. So I recommend about a palm full of walnuts a day. Fantastic. Very easy recommendation. So generally legumes, but here in this specific context, nuts. The second thing that you mentioned were greens. Yeah, dark green leafy vegetables earn their place in the anti-aging eight as the vegetable most associated with a longer lifespan. The nitrates in greens, we think of nitrates in beet juice and, and beets, but the actually most concentrated sources are dark green leafy vegetables, can improve age-related declines in muscle and artery function, and slow our metabolic rate. That's the kind of thing you would get with serious caloric restriction, actually slows your metabolic rate, and the, the candle that burns half as bright burns twice as long. You can get that same metabolic slowing without starving all the time just by eating a big salad. And uh, then in terms of specific greens, the sulforaphane and cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, kale, collards, cauliflower, cabbage, improves our immune function, uh, particularly our gut immune function, and uh, boosts the detox enzymes in both our liver and our airways, um, which has uh, all sorts of benefits, in particularly if you live in kind of an air pollution environment. After greens, there's berries. Berries are the like fruit most associated with a longer lifespan. I talk about the benefits of amla, which is this dried Indian gooseberry powder, which is nasty, but you can add it to smoothies or something, and the anthocyanin pigments in berries that are responsible for those bright purple colors. That's what we, why we think berries have been shown in interventional trials to improve cognitive function, eyesight, inflammation, blood sugars, artery function, cholesterol, though they do get cleared from your bloodstream in about six hours. So that's why I recommend dosing at every single meal with anthocyanin. So you could have like berries for like dessert at every meal, or there are actually like savory sources of anthocyanins. Probably the cheapest source is purple cabbage or red cabbage, those same berry phytonutrients, or like purple sweet potatoes. Another way you could include it into meals. And then, and then running through the other aspects of the anti-aging aid. I also cover how to naturally boost levels of an enzyme cofactor called NID+, something called xenohormesis, microRNAs, caloric restriction, protein restriction, methionine restriction, which again is probably the most powerful single thing we can do. Nuts, greens, berries, sin hormones and microRNA manipulation, pre and postbiotics, caloric restriction, protein restriction, NAD+, on caloric restriction. I do understand this idea, hey, a candle that burns half as bright burns longer. A couple of questions to that. So when I think about calorie restriction, I would assume that goes hand in hand with reducing muscle mass, muscle strength. Is that correct? And if so, how does that play a role in, in aging and the quality of aging as we want to preserve yeah. muscle mass? And yeah, yeah. So muscle and bone mass can be preserved by combining caloric restriction with resistance exercise. So it's critically important if you are drastically restricting your calories, you need to accompany that with a resistance exercise regime or you are going to lose uh, muscle and bone mass. 
Thankfully, in the calorie trial, which is the largest study of calorie restriction to date over a two-year period, there was not a relative reduction in uh, muscle or bone mass, but that's because they're also accompanied by an exercise regimen. Two things that, uh, that aren't going to be helped, though, is uh, calorie restriction can impair wound healing and recovery from infection. So this is the kind of thing where if you do practice something like this, same thing with protein restriction. If you are about to go into some kind of voluntary surgery or something, some kind of, and you're going to be require wound healing, that's the time to bring your protein levels back up, bring your calorie levels back up. Again, this is something during flu season, for example, people may want to stop the caloric restriction for a few months to maintain their ability to recover from infection when they're in any kind of situation where they're riskier for infection. So look, there's, there's potential downsides to a lot of these people who love their lives and want them to be uh, as long as possible, may be willing to take some of these downsides along with the up. We at Freeletics had looked into studies around caloric restriction because that's a topic for debate also internally and how we want to coach our users. I would like to share my conclusion or what I found here and get your thoughts on that is that so one is a lot of the a lot of the research, a lot of this, where does the caloric restriction come from was seemed to be rooted first of all in animal data. Then there there was research on humans. But what we've seen there is that when that was controlled for diet quality, most of the supposed benefits of that restriction were lost. And so our so what was that it seemed for us that caloric and protein restriction are helpful if calories and protein come mostly from unhealthy sources and or if people are overweight as there's a massive health benefit in getting towards normal weight. Otherwise, we were careful in coaching a caloric restriction. Yeah, yeah, no, you bring up some really important points from the literature. People, caloric restriction advocates talk about how simply reducing intake of food can double, even triple lifespan of like yeast, fruit flies, and some worms. And average maximum lifespan increases up to 50% in rodents. But what they don't end even say that caloric restriction works across the board, which is demonstrably not true. Most animals tested, the lives are not prolonged by caloric restriction, nor even most strains of mice. Most strains of mice are not prolonged. So there's specific strains of mice, specific model organisms, but certainly not across the board. And the good news in humans is that even 12% caloric drop in caloric intake, so that was this calorie study, resulted in a variety of physiologic, psychologic, and anti-aging benefits. Though they And these were people who were normal weight. But guess what's normal? This is done in the United States. Guess what's normal in the United States? Overweight. The average American is overweight. So being normal weight, quote unquote normal weight, is actually being overweight. So these were overweight. I think their average BMI was 27, right? And of course, caloric restriction is going to benefit from someone who's overweight. Right. But is that actually going to translate into people who are already at ideal weight? And the other thing as well is that it's very difficult to separate out the concurrent improvements in dietary quality. People can't tend to cut out some of the junk first. So just cutting out junk, just bring down caloric intake to get ideal body weight certainly has, has uh, the benefits. One thing I would that really did come out of the caloric restriction literature for me was this time restricted feeding. So early time restricted feeding carries these so-called chronological 
chronobiological benefits because of our circadian rhythms. So really trying to shift more calories towards the beginning of the day, the better. Making breakfast or lunch the largest meal of the day may actually be one of the reasons why the Seventh-day Adventists in Lovellinda, California, actually the longest living formerly studied population in the world. Yes, they do eat healthier diets, et cetera, et cetera. But that's one of the things that may be accounting for it. Michael, last question for today, because we've covered so many things and have given our listeners so much information. Do you for lack of a better word, do you think that we can heal society at large? Because, you, you know, what you talk about in your book resonates extremely well um, with me, the different topics, because wow. I feel that I'm already at an 85% level and you can right. tweak this and that, and we can have a discussion around some of the nuances and I can implement some of these things that take a lot of value from that. What I worried about is that the majority of the population is so far away from just living decently right. healthy right. or appropriate towards aging with all these major killers, no exercise at all, terrible junk food, smoking, drinking booze all the time. And I'm asking myself, how can we at a societal level help some of these or most of the people get rid of these worst parts of the behavior? And my my idea here, and it's also controversial to a certain extent, but I love the idea of controlling environment. And that's either via yourself or via the government. But if you're in a group that, that drinks, is lazy and smokes, you'll likely smoke, drink and waste mm. your time. If you're in an environment that is healthy, productive and focused, even if you're the worst in that environment, you will be better than the best <laughs> in the other yeah. in environment. No, I'm so glad it is a perfect place to end. In fact, that's how I end the book. The whole conclusion is, okay, let's take a big step back, right? There's 13,000 citations in this thing, but you know, let's get back out of the weeds and look, you do not need to make drastic changes, not all or nothing. Even those basic common sense lifestyle factors can mean living literally a decade longer, not smoking, not being obese, moving regularly, more fruits and vegetables. And look, it's never too late. It's never too late to stop smoking, start moving more, start eating healthier. We really have the power here. In terms of helping people make those healthy decisions, it's, it is indeed all about environment. We can help control our home environments, but we're going to need help out in the wider world. Some of the most exciting things happening in the public health space particularly around a diet, are this kind of choice architecture work where you make default healthy meals. So for example, in all 11 public health hospitals in New York City, biggest city in the country, all meals are strictly plant-based, healthy, no processed foods as the default. Now, look, you can still order whatever you want, but if you don't say, but if you don't argue, then the meals you're going to get are healthy. And so it's, wow, healthy food in the hospital? What a concept, right? But it's just making the default option healthier. So we're not restricting anybody's choices. People can still do what they want, but just making the healthier option, the easier option will go a long way to improving society's health. Love that idea. Michael, where should listeners go to learn more about you, your work, the book? They can go to nutritionfacts.org, where, of course, everything is free. And uh, you can go to your local public library and get a copy of How Not to Age or order it from your favorite bookseller. All proceeds um, from the sales of all my books goes directly to charity. I don't make a penny on any of the books. I just want you and your family to live the longest, healthiest life. That sounds like a very good deal. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. All the best with your mission. Had a great time looking forward to coming back with the next book. We'll do that. Great. This was part two of my conversation with Michael. 
in part one, we are discussing how much better your life could be if you follow the basics of micro anti-aging principles, what the three most powerful pathways of aging are, and the six main parts of an optimal anti-aging regimen. And we'll discuss whether too much protein kills you. Expect to get simple, practical advice that can increase the amount of high-quality years you live quite significantly.